This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Today's guest is Christopher East from the YouTube channel Eastbound. Christopher had a near-death experience in 2015 from taking too much of a fat burner called DNP, and today we're going to learn about his experience. Christopher, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you, and welcome. Hey, Jeff. How's it going? Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. All right. Awesome. So if you don't mind, uh, can we either start on the day that you had your NDE or do you want to give us a little backstory first? Yeah, we'll, we'll just start with the backstory because I think it's important to understand the, the nature. Um, so I OD'd on a chemical that's used to burn fat. It's called DMP. Um, it's extremely dangerous. It's very toxic on the body. One of the things that's difficult about um, DMP is uh, when you OD on it, there's there's no mechanism doctors can use to remove it from your system. And so basically what happens when you OD on DMP is that um, your body temperature keeps rising and rising and rising until you literally cook yourself to death. Um, and uh, another thing is once you kind of OD on DMP, you're pretty much guaranteed to die. Like I said, there's nothing doctors can do. Um and one of the crazy things is with my OD that I survived, I'm one of only three people in the world to be medically documented to have survived an overdose. Um, everyone else dies pretty horrific deaths. So um, I had an eating disorder. I had um, uh, altered form uh, atypical bulimia where I would binge eat. But instead of purging through something like um, traditional purging through either vomiting or laxatives, I OD'd or took a, a large amount of this chemical to it because it increases your metabolism, but in this very dangerous and toxic way. And I knew it was potentially life-ending. Um, everyone in the bodybuilding community, I used to be very into fitness, um, knew that, you know, like you don't touch this stuff, but, you know, because I had this eating disorder, I wasn't addressing, I was willing to take this huge chance. So on the day I OD'd, I accidentally took a second dose. I don't really, the difficult thing about my OD is I don't really remember a lot of the events that happened while I was ODing. Um, I remember taking my first dose. I became very delirious because of the first dose. I took a nap. I woke up. And for some reason, like I took a second dose. I don't remember taking the second dose, but I did. Um, the next memory I have is like, I was in the shower on its coldest setting. Cause I was trying to regulate my body temperature. Um, my brother-in-law was like concerned about me. I was like collapsed on the, like the shower floor. And I was asking for like a milkshake and Coca-Cola cause, um, I was so depleted of all carbohydrates and my body just needed simple sugars as fast as I, as it could. So I asked for that. I kind of lost consciousness. My brother-in-law called the ambulance and the paramedics, by the time they got there the first time, I was apparently cogent enough to send them away. Like I wouldn't go. 
Um, but then I lost consciousness again. They took me to the hospital. And at first, like things seemed wrong, but like it wasn't that bad. I don't have any remember. Uh, I don't have any memory of going to the hospital. I don't have any memory of talking to the nurses. I don't have any memory of talking to the doctors. But apparently I was like super combative. Uh, I would not tell anyone what I was on. At the time, I thought DMP was illegal to own. It's only illegal to sell for human consumption. So I was afraid of getting into trouble. So I wouldn't tell anyone this chemical I was on, even though I was like Odin. And I was kind of out of my mind. Um, I was like cursing at nurses. And anyone that knows me in my life is I'm pretty calm and nice. Uh, so it got so bad. And I kept on trying to leave, even though my like stats were getting worse and worse, that they eventually put me in restraints. And then uh, my condition, like, pretty much overnight got really bad uh, to the point where they uh, suggested to my mother to put me in a medically induced coma until they could figure out what was going on. Um, but fortunately I, I didn't tell them anything. I didn't, I, they had no idea what they were working with. And one of the other dangerous things about DMP is that overdoses or ODs of it are so rare and uncommon that most of the doctors have no idea what this chemical is. Um, They've never studied it. They don't, they don't know how to treat it. Um, all they're really doing is treating the symptoms. But in the kind of thing that sucks is even if you do know it's DMP, that, like I said, there's nothing they can really do for you. Um, so overnight, um, my kidneys started to fail. My liver started to fail. My organs in general started to fail. Um, I went into respiratory failure. My blood became acidic. I developed acidosis. Um, all these things quickly started falling into place. Um, my body temperature was 105, uh, even with these ice packs that they were using to try to regulate my body temperature. So at that point, um, I nearly died from six to seven different things, um, from body heat to multiple organ failure, to blood issues, to CO2 issues. And so um, they straight up told my family like, hey, um, we don't really know what to do. He's probably going to die um, probably tonight. And so that happened. Um, the next day, uh, things were equally as bad, but kind of staying that bad. And then my brother, um, who luckily knew I was on DMP at the time, told the doctors finally. And there's this experimental drug that treats the hypoth uh, the hyperthermia, which is the excess body heat. They put me on that. That resolved my body heat. And slowly, um, I started to get better. And then um, they brought me off my medically induced coma uh, a couple days after that. Wow. I've never even heard of DNP before. Can you give me a little background of what that is? Yeah. So DMP is a pesticide or explosive. Um, and then in the early 1920s, they discovered when it was ingested, um, the mechanism and how it works. Uh, I did a, another interview with this amazing doctor here on YouTube called Chebby Emu. He has a channel called Heme Review where he does more serious breakdowns. If you're curious about the mechanism, he explains it way better on his channel. But basically, it enters your mitochondria. And the joke is the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. But um, it works in this way that basically it tricks your body into thinking it doesn't have any energy. And so your body kind of goes into crisis mode because it's like, we don't have any ATP. We don't have any ATP. So it kind of thinks you're starving in an effect and it just constantly is dumping energy. And so it raises your metabolism depending on your dose by 20, 30, 40 to 50%. So, you know, your basal rate goes from about 2000 calories a day to, you know, as high as 3000, 4000 calories a day um, in just metabolic activity. Mm -hmm. So 
when you do that, you can use it as a fat burner because it artificially increases your metabolism so intensely. But the issue is that sounds great, but um, you're produce you're sweating really intensely, like you're in a sauna. Your body temperature is really high. Um, you're expelling a lot of CO two, and it's it's very harmful and damaging to your organs. It's it's pretty intense. Um, in the 1920s, they sold it as a you know like kind of like a fat burner pill. And then a bunch of people died, and so they banned it. Um, but of course, with the bodybuilding community, anything that can be used to either gain muscle or lose weight, um, they'll find it, and then they'll kind of advertise it. And I discovered it. Um, I used to be really o- overweight. Um, I was 260 pounds. I lost over 100 pounds. But I discovered it on a shady like bodybuilding community because I was looking for ways to kind of cheat the system, so to say. Right. Did you notice when you were taking it that you would lose like a lot of weight or what kind of results did you get from it? It's tough because um, I also had a lot of self-hate from a lot of different things. And I I used a self-harming behavior of fitness. I talk about on my channel why fitness is my favorite form of self-harm. But I would work out four or five hours a day. But the thing that sucked is I also had binge eating. So yeah, I would work out four to five hours a day, but I, I would binge 3,000, uh, 3, 4,000 calories in a sitting. And so, yeah, when you take DMP, it raises your, your, your metabolic rate and you can lose weight on it, right? But the thing that's difficult that no one really tells people is that because your body thinks it's starving, you get the most intense sugar cravings. Like people, I can't even describe it. Um, you're like constantly ravishingly hungry for like simple sugars, carbs, pasta, all this stuff. And so the weird thing is at the time, I unfortunately gave this dangerous chemical to a bunch of my friends who are also in bodybuilding. And despite how powerful this drug is, I know people who have gained weight on DMP. Um, So yeah, it's easy to lose weight on DMP, but it's ironic because if you struggle with impulse control and, and struggle with managing your weight anyway, um, the side effects of this chemical are actually going to probably make you gain weight. Uh, the only reason I ever lost as much weight as I did on DMP was I was also working out four to five times a day rather aggressively. Wow. So when did you have your near-death experience? Was it in the, ha- in the shower at home or was it at the hospital or, or where? Yeah, my my near-death experience happened during my medically induced coma, during the period where I was the closest to dying. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had a few post uh, medically induced coma near death experiences where I had some kind of visual hallucinations um, and some like long term changes. But the strongest experience I happened I had w- happened in my medically induced coma during the days I was going to pass. All right, so let's get into it. What happened? Yeah, definitely. Um, so the way I describe it is the first thing I remember is um, looking around and I was in a white room. The walls were kind of like glossy, um, but like a very bright white. Um, the next thing that stands out is that the room was shaped like an egg. So like the inside of an egg, kind of this oval sort of thing. Um, definitely not like any kind of room I've ever seen in person Uh, The next weird thing is like there was no features to the room. Like there wasn't like a window into the room. There was no doors. There was no like furniture, no table, anything like that. It was just an empty like egg-shaped room. I would say it's like a moderately big room, like the size of maybe like a a living room, if that makes sense. 
So you were in your coma, and then during your coma, you just became conscious inside this room. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And it's the only memory I have uh, of my overdose. Um, Mm -hmm. And the thing that's weird is I don't don't really remember the pre-parts. And once I woke up from my medically induced coma, um, those are when memories start to get formed again. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that's really strange about this experience, I talk about this in my near-death experience video on my channel, is I'm not really someone that dreams. Um, I, I don't ever remember my dreams. And when I do, they're very vague. But when I re-encounter the experience in the egg-shaped room, it feels like I'm recollecting something that's happened to me in real life. Um, mm. My channel is full of stories that have happened to me in real life, and they don't feel any different. Um, it feels like something I, I literally experienced, and I remember it in that fashion. Even though, as I'll get into, there there's several elements of the experience that like obviously couldn't have happened in reality. Mm. Okay, so you were in the room. It was egg shaped. It was white, completely white. Yeah, like white walls, white floor. Yeah. All right, and then what happened? Yeah, and the, the other thing that was weird about the room is, um, it was a it was brightly lit. But the thing that was weird about the way it was brightly lit is like, as you can like, there was no source of that light. Like when you're looking at me right now, you can tell that there's light coming this way. And there's part of the room that's lit and there's parts of the room that have shadows. Um, But the room was lit in this way that there was no direction to the light. Everything was just lit. Um, And I remember like, if you really think about it, even with the sun, like there's still this directionality to light or there's shadows or all this stuff. But in the room, there was no no concept of light being that kind of physical entity. Um, So the next big thing is I was floating on my back, but my perspective was not of that from my eyes. Um, I was detached and I was standing, I guess floating is the better way to say it. So I was floating on my back, but my viewpoint was sort of floating um, behind me, looking down at my body. I was naked, but I wasn't really fixated on my nakedness, right? Like there wasn't this idea of like examining myself. There was just a perception of like, oh, I'm floating on my back and I'm naked, Um, The weird thing is, even though I was disembodied or um, disconnected from my body, I didn't feel like I was, right? Like the other times in my life that I've had dissociation from my body, like my viewpoint and me as a person feel very disconnected from my body. So this is the only experience in my life where I was looking down at myself, clearly disconnected, but I still felt inside of myself, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I was just floating looking down at myself and the next strong memory I had was a voice called out to me and the voice asked, will you ever do this to your body again? And the weird thing about the voice is like, there was no speaker, right? I didn't see anyone and there was no directionality to the voice, right? Like it wasn't from my left. It wasn't from my right um, or behind me. And the other weird thing is I experienced the voice more than I heard the voice. And the best way I can describe this is, if you try to listen to the voice in your head and you really pay attention to it, there's no tonality to the voice in your head. Um, the voice in your head isn't low. It isn't high. It's not gendered. It does, it's not male or female. It, you're just experiencing this voice. So the voice I heard uh, wasn't my own. And, but like, I couldn't tell you whether it like leaned like a masculine voice, feminine voice, um, whether the voice had low pitches or high pitches. So I experienced the voice. 
And the the tonality or the way the voice made me feel was weird because um, another thing is I felt really calm in the room. Um, I was confused, but I wasn't scared. Um, I didn't really know what was going on. And I had no perception that I was ODing or that my life was on the line. I just knew I was in the room and that something was off. Um, but when I asked, got asked the question, I remember feeling shameful and not because the voice made me feel judged, but because clearly I'd done something wrong. Even though I, I had no memory that I had over like OD'd, I just knew I'd fucked up, like I'd done something wrong. Um, and so after a minute, I, I spoke out and I said, no. And a moment passed and the voice said, okay, um, I'm sending you back now. Um, one other thing about the voice is um, the way I would describe feeling the voice is like sort of like when you're underwater, like it's all around me touching like like this, this complete um, surrounded by the voice. Um, some common questions I get is like, did I see any other family members? Uh, my dad passed at that point, maybe seven or eight years before this. I never sensed his presence. I never saw him as much as I, I would have loved to. Uh, I never saw the speaker of the voice. This, it was always kind of experiencing it, never seeing anyone. Um, so after the voice said, okay, I'm sending you back now, um, the next thing I remember is waking up from my coma and seeing my sister. Wow. Well, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And I believe you're the second NDE experience story that I've had that they didn't hear the voice. They kind of described it as you have they experienced the voice yeah so that's pretty interesting you know obviously i would think it was going to be telepathy because if you're out of your body you're not using your ears obviously but and um and that also attributes to the experience but i find it interesting that you really couldn't locate any masculine feminine you couldn't even you know you just you just felt it there's nothing that you really heard right yeah exactly that's really amazing because that equals to me that that was an NDE because, again, you're not using your body's perception. You experienced it. Yeah. Um, and another thing is is when I was, I don't know, I felt safe in the room because the, the next strong memory I have is I remember waking up in the hospital room and I had no memory of being in the hospital. And the first thought I had was being uncomfortable at being in a hospital room. I literally thought to myself, why am I in this room? What happened to the room I was just in? And if, and I remember not questioning that I was in the room. I was just like, why did it was almost like they moved me from one room to another in real life. And I was like, and I woke up and I was like, Whoa, this was not the room I went to sleep in. And then the next thing I felt was like, like fear at being in the hospital room and being felt very unsafe. Mm -hmm. uh, I had other experiences um, in that time frame of hallucinations that I had that kind of play into that. Um, so the next kind of part of my NDE is for a few days in the beginning after I woke up, I saw auras. Um, the weird thing about the auras is they were only really around people I knew. Um, so I remember my sister, Margaret, the first person I saw Hers was blue and it, it kind of represented the way it made me feel. She made me feel like calm. Um, I was dating my ex-fiance at the time and she was like a brilliant gold. And I remember like just, she seemed so beautiful. 
And it made me, I don't know, feel loved and understood. And my best friend, Daniel, he had like an amber. And when he walked in the room, it made me just feel so like safe and comforted, um, had like a source of strength to it. But I didn't see auras around um, the doctors, around nurses. I only saw it around people I like intimately knew. And then the less I knew them, because I had family, friends visit, um, the fainter they would be or they just wouldn't be there. Yeah. Um, the next hallucination I had was at night. Um, I was in so much pain and then my OD ravaged my body. Uh, my metabolism was so high that it started cannibalizing my muscle and also the body heat damaged my muscle. So when I first woke up, I, I was so weak. I, I thought I was paralyzed um, because I couldn't move my legs, my hands. I couldn't turn my head. I was in so much pain. So at night, um, I'm a stomach sleeper and I was in so much pain. I was on my back. And so it was so hard for me to fall asleep. And I was also so weak that I couldn't even turn my head to look anywhere else, but stare at the ceiling. And on the ceiling, there was this like spider webbing cracks of red and black and like a really dark red. And it would just sit there and pulsate and like kind of spread across the ceiling. And it, it just made me feel so terrified. And like, it was like such a dark energy to the hospital room and the hospital room in general. And some of the staff had kind of a weird vibe to them that I didn't really like. And was sort of there being trapped in my own body, unable to do anything but stare at the ceiling where I, I just had this sense of like a caged animal. Like I just need to get out, like I need to get away from here. Um, in general, the visual hallucinations I had, like the auras and stuff, um, they went away probably a week two week and a half after I was awoken from my medically induced coma. Um, yeah. All right. Does the memory of the experience of being in the rooms, is that still with you today and never leaves you or you can't shake it or has it faded? That's interesting. Um, I think as, as all ex experiences do, they, they tend to lighten a little bit. But um, the way I would describe it, and this is going to be a weird comparison, but I would describe it similar to being traumatized. Um, I've gone through a lot of trauma in my life. And when you go through profound trauma, that, that memory or that experience becomes ingrained in you as a person. And although it, it shifts and it, it dulls with time, there's just such a, a palpable like realness to it or, or this, these rich details that stay with you. Um, I can think about the day my father died that happened in 2010. And I remember all those details intimately. Like I remember everything about the day. I couldn't tell you what happened the day before. And I could barely tell you about the, you know, the next week of my life after the death of my father. But that memory of my dad passing it is just so deeply ingrained in me. I remember what it felt like, how people reacted. So I would describe it like that. This experience has been so ingrained in me and all the kind of the details afterwards, uh, I remember it with stunning clarity. After time has went on, I'm assuming you've pondered this experience, thought about it over the years. Have you come to any personal conclusions about this experience? Like what this, what this whole thing meant or what you think happened? Any, yeah. Anyth anything else from what we've already talked about? I don't know. It's tough. I, I'm a skeptic by nature. Uh, I'm critical of everything. I'm critical of my own experiences. I'm critical of, excuse me, 
critical of Christianity and religion, critical of science, critical of everything. I like to question things and, and get at a, a truth. So I've gone through a lot of experiences afterwards that have weirdly enough kind of made the experience more valid. I already say I don't really dream much. So the first critique is like, oh, could it just be like a dream um, when you're in a medically induced coma? I, I guess maybe, but the the feeling is, is it felt so real and I don't have any other experience in my 28 years of being alive that are similar. Like I've never had a dream where I woke up and I was like, I felt like I lived it, right? Some people, they have these very lucid dreams. I've never had a lucid dream. I can I can barely remember anything. But ironically, the 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 thing that kind of made me feel more valid in my experiences in the years that followed, I started taking psychedelics mainly to cope with the things I was going through, and I was looking for answers for other problems in life. And so I started taking like shrooms and LSD and stuff like that. And I've experienced really powerful hallucinations, um, really powerful psychedelic drugs. And because another critique could be, well, was it just the medication that they had you on? You were just hallucinating because of that. But the difference is, is when I hallucinate on drugs, everything is altered. Uh, Everything feels weird. And for me, especially, it's just such an overwhelming bombardment of all these different things going on at once. I, I hear things that aren't there. I see things that aren't there. It's so muddied and blurred together. And sometimes things pop into clarity, but it's it's ever shifting. And always leaves me kind of confused and I have to spend a lot of time processing like, okay, what did I experience? What didn't I? And that's the thing that was really difficult about the auras and the thing I saw on the ceiling is nothing else was changed. I didn't have auditory hallucinations. Not everyone had an aura. Um, There was no other object in the room that was altered. Um, There was none of the other trademarks of, oh, I'm on a psychedelic drug. Mm -hmm. And when I and with psychedelics, I've become kind of um, what's it called? Not disjointed. I've dissociated from my body on uh, hallucinogens, right? Where I felt my viewpoint was detached from my body. But in those experiences, I felt like I was also detached from my body, right? So the opposite of what I described earlier. And it made me really fearful. I was like, oh, can I ever get back to my body? Or like, what's going on? I feel very separate. And so there's another weird thing about my experience in the room is I didn't feel that way. My viewpoint was so utterly detached and looking down at myself but I still felt inside my body. So I don't know. In my experiences with real hallucinations and trips and things that are very clearly not real, um, it's weird because when I look back at my experiences in my near-death experience, even though there's elements of it that are clearly not real, right? Like floating on your back, like no one in reality can just float on their back or being detached or even the shape of the room or the strange nature of light. Even though there's these details that are clearly not a part of our reality, the perception of it or the experience of it felt like something that was grounded in reality that had happened to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. When you said that you were floating on your back, in that experience, did you happen to look at your, try to say, okay, well, I can see my hands or did you notice that you had some kind of energetic body or do you feel like you were just pure consciousness and you looked down and saw your body? That's an interesting question. I've never really questioned it. And I, I guess that's the weird thing is it, it only seems weird. It only seemed weird to me after the fact, right? Like 
when I was detached from my body and was looking down at it, like it, it just was right. Um, it felt like, Oh, okay, this is happening. And it, that didn't seem strange, even though like when I'm thinking about it now, like what would I do right now? If that happened to me, like I would look at, Oh, do I have hands? Like, can I move around? But when I was in the room, I was just like, Oh, I'm detached. And I didn't really question it. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it just was in the same way. Like, I didn't really question the room. I just accepted that I was in the room and that something was happening. What I'm also curious about is what made you or what gives you the perception or the feeling that you were on your back floating? Why do you think that? Oh, well, visually, I just saw myself kind of like laying prone on my back, but there was nothing beneath me. I was probably like table height in the air. You didn't roll over and look down. You just kind of said, you just happened to look down and look at your body. Even though if you're on your back, your eyes would be focusing at the ceiling, right? Yeah, because so my, think of my my body in a bed, right? Mm -hmm. And it was just floating in the center of this room. And then say this is my head, right? And this is my feet. My viewpoint, if this is like the cone of my viewpoint, was like kind of detached behind my head looking down mm -hmm. at my body. So I could see that there was space below me and I could see around me. And like I looked around the room, but the viewpoint was this like kind of tilting, detached thing. Um, I don't know. For those that have ever 3D modeled, just uh, like imagine like placing a camera and the scene that you can articulate or like a video game thing and mm -hmm. um, it just very detached from anything to do with me. Right. So it sounds like you had 360 perception because you were mm. facing the ceiling, but you were yeah. looking down behind you. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Do you feel like you got any kind of spiritually transformation from this? That's tough. Um, so like I said, the, the auras went away. Um, the hallucination went away. The only lasting impact I, that I've had from this experience is I feel like I'm way more in tune with my emotions and the emotions around me. Uh, I would say I've gained a very weak sixth sense where I have this perception of the, I hate it. Cause anytime you start talking about energies, you get into this, this realm of kind of seeming cuckoo or making things up. But I don't know the way I describe it is like, when I'm around someone or even sometimes looking at photos, um, the more real the person is, the stronger the perception is. But um, those who are either um, the it's always those who had either really difficult lives, um, but are beautiful people or really dark and bad people. Right. So the more extreme they are, the stronger the perception of them as a person is. And so it's just this internal feeling that I get off of people and it leads, leads to this, I would call maybe intuition about their life where like sometimes I'll know way more about what they've gone through than they've ever communicated to me, right? And um, Or I'll get a perception of them as a person. And I would say more times than not, by a large margin, the more I get to know them, the more that intuition is grounded. And it's kind of difficult because I'll meet people that give me this really dark energy and I won't want to do anything with them. But then it's hard because how do you validate that feeling? You can't just look at someone and be like, yo, I get like a, I get a bad energy off of you. I can't mess with you. Yeah. But you know, I mean, it may be real. Yeah. Um, and the weird thing is with normative people who have had normative lives, who haven't had, you know, any great whatever, I get this empty feeling from them and empty in the sense of like, they're just not radiating anything. And I wouldn't say that's a bad thing. 
it's just a thing, right? They, they're not radiating either light or darkness. They just radiate, oh, like you're normal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. It's tough because uh, as I talk about my channel after my overdose was dramatic and traumatic, mm-hmm. um, but I would go through events way harder than that in the years to follow. And it really tested me as a person, tested um, my will to live and all these other things. And I remember I needed help and I tried to reach out to God and reach out to something bigger because I was lost and I was struggling and I became, uh, came down with these urges to end my life and all these other things. And I, I sought out that connection I had in that room, um, the safety I, I felt and that sense of guidance. And I don't know. I've never felt that connection with when I've attempted to go to the Bible or any other form of traditional, like recognized religion. Um, and I want to be careful. Like I'm not sitting here trying to like persuade you one way or another about Christianity, religion, um, any of that. I, I don't know. All I know is that at least in my attempts to connect what I experienced in the room with something, you know, recognized as Christianity or Islam or whatever it is, it's never stuck. The only thing that's ever stuck for me is kind of the day I met my higher self, as I call it. Um, I was in this really dark place and uh, I was really lost and uh, really depressed and going through all these things. And I remember I met my higher self and the way I describe it is there was this kind of floating person standing above me. And they looked like me, but the like the look in his eyes wasn't me, right? It was like almost like I don't know if you met a future you and you'd be like, oh, that's me, but different. And he looked down at me and said, um, uh, be more. And I remember feeling uh, like I, I can't. And I, I just had this back and forth. And I was just like, I'm struggling. He, he said, I know, be more. And I said, don't, don't you know how difficult my life's been? He said, I know, be more. And then I, I, I just said, I can't. And the last thing he sort of said was like, it's you and you alone that can breathe life into me. And so... Ugh, oddly emotional. Um, so I I define my higher self as like the greater good that exists within all of us. Now you can say that's a product of Christianity or whatever it is. I don't personally care to label it. it doesn't matter to me, but my life journey and where I've been at is, is pushing on how do I come to be the highest good that I could be? How do I bring good into the world? How do, how do I be a better man and a better individual? And when I met my higher self, it was a similar experience to this sense of calm and um, they felt different, but similar. What were you doing? Were you meditating or something when you've met your higher self? Yeah, um, it was difficult. Uh, I was at this um, concert, um, this festival. And at the time um, I was, I, I'm just going to be truthful. I was on a lot of um, acid and it's tough because I, I always try to caution people with taking psychedelics because you can get a lot of truth from it and there are interesting things, but there's a lot of stuff that you should probably disregard, right? So when it comes to this experience, do I do I feel like I actually saw something? No, I was clearly tripping. Um, but that experience of, I think what I really experienced was coming into awareness of something that existed within me um, that I wasn't ready to face yet. I think... Um, a quote I love is, it's, we're not afraid of our darkness, it's our light that terrifies us. And I've always resonated with that. So in this moment where I was tripping, I saw this thing clearly not real. And that's another thing is this moment that was really meaningful to me. Um, 
that's clearly a hallucination that's not grained in any reality, right? That's clearly the product of a drug. But that's even though I I can acknowledge that with what I when I met my higher self, it that's not what it felt like to be in the white room. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I've always been drawn to this idea of trying to be the best person I can be. So, did you stop taking DNP after that? After the voice told you stop yeah. doing that? Yeah, no, I, I never touched this stuff again. Um, waking up in the hospital after nearly dying and having every single medical professional tell you you should not be alive and people doing medical studies on you um, because you should not be alive is pretty sobering. Um, and for a while, I was able to kind of get over my eating disorder, but um, I don't know, life kind of happened after that. But uh, yeah, I've never taken DMP again. Um, and I also, I don't know, in my progression to overcome my depression and all this stuff. I also haven't taken any hard drugs in, I don't know, maybe a year and a half now that I've been sober, but um, yeah. That's great. Do you fear death now? Oof. Um, truth be told, this is kind of a, a heavy subject. So I just want to trigger warning the viewers. I struggle with SI um, or the desire to end my life. Right. Mm-hmm. Um So it's tough because one of the things that's really difficult is that I seek the calm that I felt in the white room. um, And I seek the solace that some people find in death and ending your life. And so it's hard because I've tasted both things. I've experienced what it's like to kind of die. And I've experienced what it's like to come back from that. Um, The sense of joy and the, the, the drive for life I felt after my overdose was indescribable um, that I just wept. I was so emotional. This idea, oh my God, I almost died. Um, I have the second chance at life. I have this lease on life. Um, but now where I'm at in life, um, I, I unfortunately don't really fear death. Um, if anything, a part of me actively craves it. Well, from all of the ones that attempted from my guests and came back, there must be something in there that you shouldn't be doing that because the, it's all like the experience, like they shouldn't have done that. And then they came yeah. back and changed, you know, and even it seems like even in religion, I think in Catholicism, if you do that, then they won't, you can't be buried in the church. You know what I mean? And there's some yeah. kind of like law, even like, I guess the, some of the people who that are into reincarnation and all that, like if you end up doing that, then you got to come back and start all over again. <laughs> Yeah. So it's not a good idea to do that. So however I can inspire you to never do that, I'm trying. Yeah, no, I'm um I feel very driven to find answers and in a suede. And it's something I talk about on my channel, trying to help other people who mm. have those those cravings, because those are difficult things to sit with and they're usually the product of pretty profound experiences. Uh, also as a clarification, um, with my OD, it was accidental. So it wasn't an attempt on my life. Um, I was just being stupid. Um, but yeah, that feeling of like being scolded or given a second chance at life was, is really meaningful. That's another thing that really pushes me is I I survived a one in a million thing. Literally. Um, I didn't OD on a common substance. I've I'm one of three people in the world to survive this. And that carries weight and I don't easily disregard it. Right. And you were sent back for a reason. Yeah. Who do you think that voice was? Do you think it was like a guardian angel or, a, a, I mean, I know you didn't see a relative or do you think it was God yeah. or Jesus or do you have any idea? It's so hard. Um, 
because the 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 thing i want to highlight is that like if you're listening to the story and and there's a part of you that that is doubting like trust me i get it um i experienced this myself and it's so hard for me to piece together how i feel about it um the strongest thing i'm willing to say is is i felt like i met something some kind of higher power um i can't tell you what its name is i can't tell you what denomination of christianity or whatever I, i i don't know i don't know um and I, I'm by all means, like, feel free to make your in, own inferences. I just know that that experience has always left me with this feeling of before that, I would say I was a bit of a nihilist where I didn't really think there was a higher power. Um, I was kind of atheist, but not like a strong atheist. It was just like, oh, life is life. You know, there's nothing before or after. But ever since that experience, like, I've always felt like there is something more Um I don't know. It's challenging. Ever since I've shared my video, I've had people ask me these really challenging questions about afterlife. Uh, I didn't, I didn't really feel like I experienced an afterlife. If anything, I I felt like I was in like some kind of transition thing, right. Um, Kind of a a waypoint between life and whatever else is afterwards. And kind of like I was about to be sent one direction or other and Mm -hmm. I got sent back down to, you know, earth in my body. Yeah. I mean, I take it as an accident happened. Yeah. And apparently it wasn't your time and someone had to come back down there and tell you, Hey, it's not your time. It's time for you to go back. Yeah. One thing I, I would like to address is, you know, one of the comments that were really difficult to read on my video is that one of the reasons people are skeptical and it makes sense is that they've had a loved one die. Right. Mm -hmm. And you hear this story of how someone should have died and they were given a second chance. And you immediately think to yourself, why wasn't my loved one given a second chance? I think about that with my dad, my dad Mm -hmm. died of a heart attack um, at 54 and he was just gone one day. He was dropping me off at school and the next day I would never see him alive. And so, you know, even in my own mind, there's this this plainness of unfairness there, right? Because if you just accept that, like, people die and that's that, right, then that's comforting maybe to some degree. But then when you hear about how someone should have died and they met this thing and they sent them back and they were given a second chance at life, then you, you question yourself, well, why wasn't my loved one? Why wasn't my child? Why wasn't my parent? Why wasn't my significant other given a second chance at life? Um I, I can't speak to that. I don't I don't know why I was saved and I don't know why I was given a second chance of life. But um I don't know. For those that are feeling that right now, feeling that bit of unfairness at all of this, I, I just want to give you my condolences. Mm-hmm. Um, even in my own experiences, it, it's it's weird. Like I said with my father, it's just like, damn man, like why couldn't why couldn't he have gotten sent back? Like Yeah, um, I mean you make a great point. That's just part of all the unknown that is still out there is why do people come back? Why do people stay? All right, I'm going to switch gears on you. All right. Now, your your YouTube channel is called Eastbound. What, yeah. what is the content that you put on your channel? Uh, so I, I think the best way to describe my content is explain my name. Uh, so my name is Christopher East. Uh, when I was going through all this drama and all these things, I realized that my old identity of Chris became very attached to this person who was broken and traumatized and uh, wanted to end his life. And that conception of myself as Chris no longer served me. So I metaphorically kind of had to kill Chris. (laughs) And I was thinking, um, uh, because otherwise I would do it literally. And I was like, okay, let's maybe avoid the literal death and metaphorically kill um, that part of me. 
And so I was trying to settle down on, uh, okay, what new identity should I good, go for? And like I said, I met this thing called my higher self. So I named it East. Um, you know, my last name has a lineage. It belongs to my family. Uh, I'm also a sucker for play and words. East is a direction. And I was looking for direction in life. So, you know, this idea of being eastbound is being bound for this higher self my, and that. And I struggle with depression, all these things I've gone through. And I'm trying to share that journey of how do we become better people? And the way I do that is by um, cutting into myself metaphorically and just showing everything in there, the ugly, the the beautiful, the tragic, the the painful, and sharing that experience in as authentic in as real of a way as possible. And I don't know, just trying to help people get a vocab or a language for talking about these things. Um, I also advocate for males with eating disorders. Um, I made a video warning about the dangers of DMP because I'm one of the only few people in the world who have gone through an OD and could talk about the experience. So yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just try to have share this idea of the mental health journey from someone who is still very much struggling and looking for answers. And um, yeah, it's my channel. Oh, okay. That's great. Do you have any other projects that you're working on that you want people to know about besides YouTube? Um, not really. I'm, I'm, I mainly just focus on YouTube because it just really um, lines up like in general I, with mental health. Um, as many people know, when you're struggling with these weighty things, it makes it hard to engage with the rest of life. And so YouTube is my attempt to bring value and meaning to others and myself, but also helps me with my mental health. And so for the last year and a half, that's, that's where a lot of my efforts have been focused on. How often do you post videos? Uh, it depends on where my mental health is. I would say probably I shoot for at least once every two weeks, if not once a week. Okay, great. Are you active on Facebook? And if so, and somebody, you know, finds you on Facebook and reach it and wants to reach out and talk to you, do you chat with people? Uh, I don't use a Facebook personally, um, just because uh, I have, I haven't really engaged with Facebook. I, I have a Facebook, but it's, it's really only meant for relatives um, but if someone wanted to reach out and talk to me, um, my Instagram is on my channel. If you want to look up, I pretty actively engage with people. Um, I have one-on-one -on -one calls with my patrons and stuff like that, but I'm working to try to build a community. So I, I'm pretty open and, and I love hearing other people's story and, and having chats. Have you ever considered getting hypnosis to go back and see if you can pick up anything else from your near-death experience? That is an interesting question. Um, like I said, I'm I'm a skeptic, so things like hypnosis, uh, I feel skeptical about. But I would say, even though I am skeptical, I'm incredibly open minded. So yeah, I would I would try it. Um, I think that would be really interesting, actually. Um, regardless of even if it does turn out to be snake oil, I, I still think it'd be an interesting experience. Yeah. Yeah, I think it would be it would be interesting too. If you do do it, come back to me so we can get you yeah. back on the podcast and we can you can update us to what you found out. Yeah, if there's any hip, hypnosis in the Midwest, um, reach out to me on my email. Well, there's a lot out there. Yeah, and I've had a lot of them as as guests, so there's a lot. Of oh, that's there. dope. Somebody may reach out to you after seeing this podcast. Yeah, of course. And if anyone wants to reach out. Um, Email or Instagram is the best way that it's always in the description of my video. Um, mm -hmm. I, I tend to, I always try to respond to everyone. I am struggling with mental health. So if it takes me a couple of days, just please 
be understanding. But yeah, I encourage people to reach out. All right, Chris. Well, is there one last message that you would like to share with everybody before we wrap it up? Oh, that's a tough one. Jeff hit me with those hard-hitting questions. Um, I don't know. I can't. I I honestly can't tell you much. All I can tell you is my experiences, and let you decide for yourself. Um, I don't know. In my experiences of the world, um, regardless of what label you want to give them, I I do think there's good, and I do think there's evil. Whether that's light or dark, whether it's God or Satan, um, and I just encourage everyone that there is some good in you a great deal of it and reaching that good and realizing your good is going to be hard and it involves a lot of trials and tribulations but um i don't know i think we have the desire to be important and our lives have meaning um i'm not of the opinion you can get that through followers or money or whatever it is but bringing some measure of good into the world so um i know it's hard uh, and i'm speaking from personal experience but i think it's worthwhile so um, and I do believe there is a higher thing and, and reaching that is important for humans, I think, but yeah. That's a great message. And I'm sure you've helped people with this podcast and I'm sure you help a lot of people with your YouTube channel. Yeah. So same I, Jeff. All right. Well, I want to say thanks again. I wish you massive success with your channel thank you. and, and uh, have a great evening. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. All right. Take care. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.